0: Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe.
1: I'm Zoe's mom. Oh, yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Frida. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners. We have discovered that our very top top two downloads for our series on Dorothy Sayers and the Peter Whimsey novels. So it seems like books are pretty popular with you guys. So we're going to be doing another one today. A big, heavy tome called Lonesome Dove by Larry McMurtry. It's really an amazing book. It's how many pages? Let's see. The, the uh, version that we have, the edition, is 858 pages. So this is a heavy one. And we want to warn you right up front that we are going to spoil the hell out of this book. We are going to talk about anything and everything. So So, spoiler alert, no spoiler alert, I'm kidding, is that we recommend this book. Mm -hmm. Read the book and come back is what we really recommend. We don't want to lose you. We hope you'll come back, but this is a great book. If you haven't read the book and don't want to read the book and you just want to listen to the podcast, fantastic. We will do our best to be as clear and contextual as possible. But please know that in an 858-page book, it's going to be hard to explain every character and their background and so forth. So we hope we'll be clear. But if you haven't read the book, it may not always make sense. This is no Harold and the Purple Crayon.
0: <laughs> that said, the book is really enthralling. And even if you listen to the entire podcast, I would still recommend trying it out. You know, even if you know what's going to happen, it's still c- yeah, got just as much entertainment value.
1: Yeah, I totally agree with that. And the thing about reading the book when I read it the first time, yeah, there's some surprises in the plot. You don't always know exactly where it's going. And so thank Happen, But even knowing it, the way McMurtry writes and the way the characters express themselves is, I reread it and I knew everything that was going to happen and I was still enthralled. So just wanted to make sure we were clear about what we're going to be doing in the podcast so you can make a good choice for yourself. Now, the big question we faced when we're putting this podcast together is, where do we start? Because on one hand, we can give you the plot of the book, 858 pages worth. Recitations of plots are boring, usually. And so where are we going to go with this? I think the way we would like to present this to you and hope it works for you is we're going to talk just briefly about Larry McMurtry and just give you a basic idea about who he was and what some of the controversies around the book were, and then we'll kind of dive into some of the themes of the book, giving you plot details as we go, hopefully just bringing you along with us without overloading you with a bunch of detail. So let's get started with the author, Larry McMurtry, goes by Larry, not because we're friends of his, and he was born in 1936, so he's about 82 years old, still alive, still kicking, still giving interviews, And uh, but his output has diminished over time. He is a really a wonderful author, not just of Westerns, not just Lonesome Dove, though we will point out that Lonesome Dove did win the Pulitzer Prize and was uh, made into a miniseries back in,
0: back in 1989. Okay. And the book was published in 1985. So there's just four years between. Right. They they hopped right on it. was a huge bestseller and won the Pulitzer
1: Prize, so TV was right on it. And I'll get back to the TV miniseries. I watched it when it first came out, so I kind of knew what the zeitgeist was at the time and the reception for it. But McMurtry himself is an interesting character. He's written books like Lonesome Dove, We Will Warn You, perhaps Trigger Warnings. I don't know if you think these should be trigger warnings, though. Yeah. But there's a lot of... There's sexual violence, mm-hmm. a lot of sexual violence, uh, a lot of using women... There is language about black people and Indians that might be considered problematic by some people. I mean, the language is problematic, right. let say that. But in the context of the book, whether you find it problematic or not, that's a different story. But I want to let you know it's in the book. If you don't like that kind of thing, you don't want to read this book mm-hmm. as
0: great as it is. There's some graphic violence and things like that. It
1: definitely, definitely graphic violence of all sorts. So be, be aware of that. But McMurtry wrote this beautifully. He also wrote Terms of Endearment. Have you do you know that book or film?
0: I mean, the title is famous enough that I've heard it, but I I don't I'm not familiar.
1: It's another award winning film, and basically it's a story about a mother and a daughter, mm. and the daughter becomes terminally ill, and they always have had a problematic relationship, but this illness the mother and daughter come together and you know things work out and they confront each other and so on and so forth Mm. but very very different than there's no uh physical violence there's no uh sexual violence in that book at all it's really about a relationship of two women so i think that that's a very interesting point when we get to the criticism of lonesome dove which is that it's misogynist right
0: as I just discovered, actually, typing it in to pull up the Wikipedia page, the first search term that yeah, you get is Lonesome Dove, and then you get Lonesome Dove misogyny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so it's something we'll talk about a lot. Yeah, we will. And the other thing that I think is interesting
1: is that he co-wrote Broke Back Mountain. Did you uh, know that? Um, yes, because you told me that oh, recently. Oh, okay. For which he did win an Academy Award. Again, this is a recommendation- Go see Brokeback Mountain. It's a wonderful... I actually haven't seen it. Oh, it's a fantastic film. It really is good. I'd love to get your take on it. It's about two cowboys who are in love with each other. It's the love that shall not speak its name, to say to quote Oscar Wilde for the millionth time. <laughs> but they, they dare not uh, show their love openly. Mm-hmm. And the tragedy that ensues from their relationship actually is pretty much ripped right out of reality. It's a wonderful film. Heath Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal are the two cowboys
0: in it. I definitely remember when people were titillated when oh, it came out, <laughs> and so it's tee heeing, yeah,
1: <laughs> gay cowboys, <laughs> yeah, like you know, like the ethos of a cowboy erased anybody who wasn't heterosexual, right? And I mean, <laughs> toxically heterosexual, right? So any kind of uh, of I'm I'm using my air quotes here non-masculine or unmasculine behavior meaning any kind of emotion kindness compassion or anything is uh, just wiped out of that ethos. It's going to be really interesting to talk about in light of Lonesome Dove. Yeah, I absolutely yeah. I think anyway, McMurtry. The other I think cool fact about McMurtry is that he owned for a long time the biggest used bookstore in the world. Right. Yes, I mean, I think that's just awesome. In his little town of Archer, right, where he lived, and he just loves books so much that he opened this bookstore. He had it open for many years. I'll bet he must have subsidized it with his own money. Quite a I bit. don't think it was a big money maker. Man, I would go on vacation, go to Archer, to just visit it. Yeah, to no, store. it's totally true.
0: <laughs> when I hear that, I'm like, he sounds like my kind of guy, yeah. you know, or our kind of guy. Clearly, has a a real sense of like a love for the physical object of a book, as well as what's in it. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And from an interview I read, you know, he's quite, like, grumpy or kind of, like, <laughs> You terse. love grumpy old men. It's true, I do. <laughs> well, you're, they're, they're charmed by you
1: because you don't take anything they say seriously. True. You don't let anything comment on you if they mm-hmm. have an old-fashioned idea of women or they're grumpy or you understand they're either in pain or they come from an older culture or whatever. You, <laughs> you get along very well with, all you know... Older guys. That's <laughs> true. Not in a romantic way. I'm, I'm saying this for the the audience. She has some great friendships. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, I like I like Larry from what I've read. You know of yeah. him, and and then reading the book as well. It's a, it's definitely a case of like the outer persona, and then an inner world is revealed through the artwork that this person makes. And it... absolutely, I agree
1: with that because he even says that in an interview, which I wish I could point to. But he says that he's surprised that people consider this misogynist because his intent in writing Lonesome Dove with these misogynist characters and racist characters was to show that, I guess the better word would be to deconstruct this kind of toxic masculinity. I don't think he used those words, but to deconstruct this cowboy ethos for what it is, to show what it is and how that underneath there isn't a congruence of the person In their interior and their exterior, that this stolid, unemotional, can take any kind of pain, not afraid, uh, rough killer man inside is a conflicted, tormented individual. Mm-hmm. with desires and loves and tendernesses and vulnerabilities like any human being has obviously. And that these two things are at odds with each other. Which I think is kind of McMurtry being, you know, raised
0: in Texas in nineteen thirty six. Very much so. And and he includes all kinds of characters, so there are tons of cowboys in this book, but you get the young, like unsure, wants to Little become Tyro. one of the men. Yeah. Yeah. You get um the the really good looking uh, charming guy who's not very competent. He's the Wickham of the book if you've ever read Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> True. <laughs> yeah <laughs> so there's just there's a whole breadth of characters and you really get you get a sense of the culture that enforces these types of masculinity. I think he might have said in an interview something like machismo. Okay um, exactly and, and that a lot of his wish to
1: dot, dig into it and to deconstruct it in my opinion, comes from the fact that he said that his mother and and or grandmother—I don't—I don't want to misquote him—but it was a very important female in his life was treated his mother. his mother was treated so badly and so roughly by her husband, and I don't think McMurtry thought that his father didn't love her, but there was no room for any kind of tenderness or even an ability to look at her as a human being and know who she was so she received a lot of abuse Uh, she worked very very hard i guess she had to carry buckets of water his father was a rancher Mm -hmm. so they lived out in the countryside with their cattle my perspective on this is that he loved his mother Mm -hmm. a great deal and he understood her and i feel that in some way by exploring the machismo and the masculinity that made his father the way he was, he was trying to speak to his mother. Mm-hmm. He was trying to do something for her. He was trying to, to reach and touch and connect with her in a way, which I think he does through the female characters in this book. And I've got a few examples.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he does say this in the interview. Like, I, I think we can include one in our show notes. But mm. he directly says, okay, loved my mother she was an incredible like competent woman and in these harsh circumstances that were not made for her and but the other thing he does say is that at the time he
1: had contempt for her Mm. because she had very little extra resources because she was caring for children she was working so hard physically And he did love her. And and later he understood how much she was giving to him. But at the time, she was the victim and the oppressed. And a child is almost always going to identify with the oppressor because Mm. that's where the power is. That's where the safety is. And so if his father had contempt for his mother, he had contempt for his mother at war with the love he had for her. And I think it is a testament to this human being that he was able to be clear enough to understand what was going on there, and to then be able to allow his love for his mother to flower. And I think it flowers in this book, and and in terms of endearment, too, probably. Yeah. Which I haven't read. I've only seen the movie, so I can't say there. But I'm very moved by that, when somebody can overcome that kind of rigid cultural cocoon that they were raised in and
0: really can burst out of that. We'll talk more about it later, but I agree. We better
1: get back to all these; or we're going to be in trouble. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) Okay,
0: well, just the
1: last little bit of... Biography for Larry McDurtry is that his father was a rancher. So you will again see in this book details about what it feels like to ride a horse for a long period of time, what it feels like to sleep on the ground, what walking is like versus riding, what the ethos of the cowboy is about uh, not wanting, they never want to walk. They'd eat their dinner on their horse rather than, than get down on the ground because that's where you have your place in
0: society is up on that horse. Yeah. So this book comes from maybe the best person who could possibly have written it, at least from the point of view of the realism and all the knowledge and details that are sprinkled in here. There's a lot of stuff about just like practical day-to-day life. Right. I never so, I never realized <laughs> is that the cowboys were
1: out there and a lot of times they were in desert like conditions dry conditions anyway if it wasn't a desert so there wasn't running water and they might have to not have anything to drink for a while and these guys got so constipated huh. can you imagine yeah <laughs> it's not something I would ever thought of yeah you know or um the the pain the hip and the back, lower back pain of riding all those years you don't see that in the movies and so there,
0: those kinds of the toll it takes to live that kind of life in in detail as you said So I would say that this book is is very gritty and not just in so much as like it has violence in it or whatnot, but it's just gritty in the very mundane details it presents and the very sort of realistic picture of like what happens to human bodies. And it really is. But now that we've handled that, I would like to just talk a little bit about the first time I read
1: the book, uh, a little bit of experience, and then we'll launch into specifics in the plot and and the themes. Well, I read this book back when you were probably about two or three, so I didn't recommend it to you at that time. (laughs) But someone recommended it to me, uh, or I saw a recommendation somewhere, and I thought, okay, I'll read it. It, To me, it looked like a cheesy beach read. Lonesome Dove and the Cowboys, and it looked like one of those... So I feel like I started reading it and went, oh my God, this is literature. This is literature. This is a good book. And not only is it literature and well-written, I can't put it down. It, it's both, not cheesy, but a beach read. It's a, it's a page turner. You just can't let it go. And you think about it in between and can't wait to get back and read more. And it's beautifully written. Now, that's why this is a classic for all time. Because it has both of those
0: elements to it. And you rarely find those together. I know I was supposed to be like reviewing the book for this podcast, kind of flipping through it because I haven't read it in a couple of years and, and I just kept getting absorbed and mom was like, come on, are we going to record? <laughs> it's been 30 minutes. And I'm like, oh, sorry. I was... You like, said you needed 10. started reading.
1: <laughs> so uh, then the next thing was
0: I recommended it to you now... When did you read this? I read it 2016. I actually read it while I was traveling on that fellowship that we've talked about in earlier episodes where I got to travel in South America and Asia. And so I was going through a lot of reading material. And there were a couple of times that people visited me. And so I had opportunities to like get books sent and send books home. So that's...
1: basically what she would do is she'd have her friend come over to the house and say, tell my mom to pick out five books for me. Yeah. <laughs> and... and I'd send them. <laughs>
0: And so um, I was in Cambodia, and my friend Dylan Blair came to visit me mm. for a week. And so I, I told you to, to bring some, and or to just send some along, and I don't remember what you picked out. I don't think I had any specific requests, and this was no. one of them that you sent with me. Yeah, I, I took the opportunity
1: to choose books that I've been telling you for years after reading Okay, this is a, a digression here. I, I, I've got to just rant, vent just a little bit. I love my daughter. <laughs> Just to bits, right? And a couple of years ago, you are like 23. She'd finally reached the age where she would listen to mom a little bit. Here's an example of what thing that would just make steam come out of my ears. So she's like in middle school or high school. And I say, oh, there's... I don't remember what book it was. But, oh, there's this great book. I probably told her three or four times, oh, it's a great book. I really recommend you read it. She's like... She's got that, that teenage resistance, right? Uh, and then one day, I come in. She's got this book. And she looks at me like she'd never like she'd never heard me say anything about the book before. I said, Oh, you're reading that book? And she says, Oh yeah, my friend so and so told me to read it. And I went, Steve <gasps> <gasps> just got out of my ears. <laughs> I'm classic teenage <laughs> stuff. It's fine. But but and that that happened not just with books, but telling you to do do thus and such good advice I had. And so when somebody else gave you the advice, you would do it. I was like <sighs> But now she's traveling. She is my prisoner. I get to choose the <laughs> books. I am control of the books. So I did send you, because I thought you would like it, as Zoe is a poet. I think we have said this before, but she is a poet. And it's called, I Sat Down by a Grand Central Station and Wept. Is that the title? Something like that. Very close. It's a, very, it's a short story poem.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: A classic. And... I read it and I go, we are going to be doing a poetry podcast and I will discuss my uh, my intermittent aversion to poetry and the effects it has on me. But I read about half of this and I said, you know, this is like great writing, really amazing poetry. I see why it's a classic, but I can't stand it. <laughs> So I sent it to you, because I, I thought you would appreciate it. I thought you would really like it. So there was that, and I sent you uh, the first Lord Peter Whimsey book. And then I also sent The Lonesome Dove, which was so thick. Maybe that was the only other book I, I it, sent. I think that might have been the case, yeah. I said, I said to her, it was a paperback, and I said to her, I know it's heavy, and she had very limited space. She was like a little pigeon, and you can only put so much weight on a pigeon, and just a little bit more will make it not be able to fly. So I said, if you can't... Whatever you read each day, just rip it off the front of the book and just leave it or throw it away. And then, you know, and then it'll get thinner and thinner and thinner. So it will be less heavy to to carry.
0: I did not do that. Um, I just read the whole thing. I also, I ended up reading most of it. So I was in Cambodia. I went to an island that's an hour boat ride or something offshore called Koh Rong Samlam, I think. And there was a hostel there and it's just, it was like, you know, classic gorgeous beach blue sky. Oh, that's right. You told me this. So yeah, just like penetrating sun, incredibly clear water, just like so beautiful. And, uh, and I spent a good few days there just chilling out in the hammock. Um, Dylan Blair left at some point. So it was just me. Um, they were there for some of it and I couldn't stop reading and I felt kind of bad. And then (laughs) they left and I just read, like I pretty much spent a few days just reading the book and I would walk over to the beach and then walk back and then keep reading. (laughs) And (laughs) that's great
1: that we, both loved it that much and so then after that really I just reread it
0: because I hadn't read it for well you showed years. it to your friend actually Lois
1: oh Lois oh yeah yeah I did I, yeah. I, I met a friend of mine who's also a great reader and I told her about it and she had the same experience she yeah. says I can't put down and even after she finished reading it she said I have a copy and it's on the table by the door so I always know where it is in the house <laughs>
0: Lois is so funny. <laughs> She's great. And, and I think she even said, like, um, other books are ruined for me right <laughs> now. I can't read anything else. Like, yes. I just want to read Rollins Some Dove again. Well, one of the things that is interesting about the book, we've talked about
1: it having, you know, all these issues, but it's exciting, it's tender, and it's also whimsical. And so let me read for you the, the very opening of the book because I know this is what caught Lois's eye. And did mine, too, because when I read this sentence, I thought, I know I'm going to finish this book. There's just, there's no way I can not finish a book that starts out with, When Augustus came out on the porch, the blue pigs were eating a rattlesnake.
0: I mean, it's so... you got to know what have you got to know.
1: <laughs> so this book is ostensibly about the relationship between two older cowboys who had previously been Texas Rangers, and they're probably maybe in their 50s, even though they never give their ages... And one is Augustus McCrae and Woodrow Call. And so Call is always called Call or the Captain. McRae is always called Gus, pretty much. So that's the, those are the two. And they have a sort of cattle company where they go down to Mexico, usually. Although they might go north. They don't really care. And they rustle cattle, basically. Yeah. And they feed them up. And horses, too. And then when people come through, they sell them, the cattle and the horses, uh, and I guess people being ranchers who are looking to sell beef up north, and that's kind of basically their their their
0: racket, their so racket, their
1: joint, shall we say? <laughs> and they live in this place that is, it sounds as dry and dusty and dingy and poor, uh, tin shacks with holes in the roofs and. Filthy floors and dirt floors and blue pigs eating rattlesnakes. And by the way, there are things as, such things as blue pigs. And if you look it up, just be careful you don't get one of those colorized ones where it's like a fake blue pig. Because <laughs> real blue pigs are not that blue. <laughs> okay. Anyway. It's
0: like blue corn.
1: Yeah. And so a lot of the whimsy comes from Gus. He's a very whimsical character. And there are just many, many other characters and I don't know uh, I guess maybe the only other key character that I want to talk about right now is Lorena lorena is a young and quite young probably I'll bet she's not barely even 20. I think she's supposed to be 18 or 18 so. yeah uh, with beautiful golden long hair and she's very very beautiful she's stuck in this town from uh, her hardship story of mm-hmm. being an orphan and being passed from man to-man and just being in a world where there was no safety net, there was no DSHS, as bad as that system can be sometimes, there was nothing. Mm-hmm. and so people could just grab people off the street and do with do with them what they will, and this kind of happened to her. And McMurtry makes, I think a very good point of how powerless women could be uh, if you weren't of the right class in this society. Because you were a school teacher, a wife, or a whore, basically. And I'm using whore as the word they use in the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's what she ended up having to be because she had no education. And she, in a way, was smart. She never met a man who wanted to marry her. They all wanted to use her. But at the same time, I always got the feeling that she didn't really want to marry a man. Mm-hmm. If she'd done it, she would have done it for her own advancement for her ability to get away for ability to find safety in the life she wanted but she wasn't looking out of some romantic idea to get married because the romance had been beaten out of her Mm -hmm. so that's Lorena and Lorena is the focus of all the desires of all the men in town because she's really the one beautiful object in that town
0: yeah she lives above the inn I think and like sells sex
1: in well saloon saloon yeah yeah
0: I'm, I'm sure so there's none in. <laughs> <All right.
1: laughs> Don't be euphemistic there. And so basically, um, I would like to talk a little bit about just sketching out Gus and Woodrow's characters and their particular kinds of approach to thing because it's so key. And it's so key to the work of the author in deconstructing this uh, masculine Facade, and it's very interesting too because the two characters are so completely different, yet somehow they're still both really locked into a certain um, value system, and that value is well, loyalty is good. I mean, that's Mm -hmm. a good value. They do have that one for sure. So there's good sides to this. They're very competent, which is a a lovely masculine trait. I mean, not saying that's purely masculine, but when you see a man being competent in his way. It's a very lovely thing. Um, and then the other thing is, though, there's a emotional distance and in oftentimes a not knowing that comes from a not knowing who you are, which you, when you're not allowed your emotional life, you're not able to find out who you are. So anyway, Augustus, he is the guy who sits around drinking whiskey. He's somewhat educated, but he's probably the most educated person around there, but he's not as educated as he thinks. And there is a great sequence where he does a sign for their business that is, it, it's very, very charming and funny. So this is a pretty charming little episode. I'm going to read probably at some length, but it is a long book and it's, it's worth hearing. So Gus writes this great sign that uh, it starts out with the name of the firm cat creek cattle company and livery emporium but that caused controversy in itself call claimed nobody knew what an emporium was including himself and he still didn't despite augustus's many long-winded attempts to explain it to him all call knew was that they didn't run one and he didn't want one whatever it was, and there was no way something like that could fit with a cattle company. However, Augustus had his way, and Emporium went on the sign. He mainly put it in because he wanted visitors to know that there was at least one person in Lonesome Dove who knew how to spell important words. Next, he put his name in Call's, his first because he was two years older and felt seniority should be honored. Call didn't care. His pride ran in other directions. Anyway, he soon came to dislike the sign so much that he would just as soon not have had his name on it at all. P I, P I is is one of their hands who works there. P E A, that's P E A, Y E U I E U I E yes. <laughs> P I, uh, badly wanted his name on the sign. So one year, uh, so one year, Augustus lettered it in for him as a Christmas present. <laughs> P, of course, couldn't read, but he could look. And once he got his name located on the sign, he was quick to point out, it out to anyone who happened to be interested. He had already pointed it out to Dish. Dish was yet another hand that they had on the, the cattle, uh, Hat Creek Cattle Company, who wasn't particularly interested. Unfortunately, it had been three decades since anyone had called P anything except P. And even Call, who had been the man to accept him into the Rangers, couldn't remember his real first name, though he knew his last name was Parker. P Parker, <laughs> having no wish to embarrass the man, Augustus had written him in as p period e period Parker comma wrangler. He had wanted to list him as a blacksmith, since in truth P was a superior blacksmith and only an average wrangler but p i thought he should he could sit a horse as well as anyone and didn't wish to be associated publicly with a lower trade now newt uh, and this is good because we're learning all the various characters we've got two of our hands. Third hand, well, he's kind of a half of a hand at this point. His name is Newt. Newt. 16, I believe. Yeah, 16, and he is most probably Call's unacknowledged illegitimate son. And I merely use illegitimate to indicate that Call was not married to Pete, His mother. Newt's mother. And so Newt's mother's dead. Gus and Woodrow took him in, have raised him, but Call, Woodrow, Call, has never. Acknowledged him or said anything to him about his parentage. So Newt recognized that he was rightly too young to have his name on the sign and never suggested the possibility to anyone, although it would have pleased him mightily if someone had suggested it for him. No one did, but then Dietz had to wait nearly two years before his name appeared on the sign, and Newt resigned himself to waiting too. So Dietz, Dietz is sort of the fourth hand, but really the top hand, well, he's kind of tied with Dish. Hmm. Dish and Dietz are the two top hands. Interestingly, Dietz is black and I will raise the question later as to whether Dietz is the magical Negro of literature or not. It's something to think about. Dietz is a he's the most lovable, kindest and extremely capable character.
0: Yeah, he just he's he's there he's and superior. He pulls pulls stuff off. He has the respect of the men and He's kind too. Yeah. He's he's quite kind
1: in his compassion. So I don't know if that makes him magical right. or if he is the person who's Uh, sympathetic. Probably one of the the characters I like the best, actually, of all Mm. of them. Of course, McMurtry doesn't turn a blind eye to what the social and political uh, consequences of certain actions are. Of course, it had not occurred to Augustus to put Dietz's name on Dietz being a black man. But when P's name was added on, there was a lot of discussion about it. And around that time, Dietz developed a tremendous case of the sulks, unlike him and perplexing to call. Dietz had ridden with him for years, through all weathers and all dangers, over country so barren they had more than once had to kill a horse to have meat, and in all those years Dietz had given cheerful service. Then, all because of the sign, he went into a sulk and stayed in it until Augustus finally spotted him, looking wistfully at it one day and figured it out. When Augustus told Call about this, his conclusion, Call was further outraged. "'That damn sign's ruined this outfit,' he said." and went into a sulk himself. He had also known Augustus was vain, but could never have suspected Dietz or P of such a failing. (laughs) Of course, Augustus was happy to add Dietz's name to the sign, although, as in the case of P, there was some trouble with the particulars. Simply writing Dietz on the sign didn't work. Dietz couldn't read either, but he could see that his name was far too short in comparison with the others. At least it was short in comparison with the other names on the sign, and Dietz wanted to know why. "'Well, Dietz, you just got one name,' Augustus said. "'Most people got two. "'Maybe you've got two and just forgot one of them.' "'Dietz sat around thinking for a day or two, "'but he could not remember ever having another name, "'and Call's recollection bore him out. "'At that point, even Augustus began to think "'the sign was more trouble than it was worth, "'since it was turning out to be so hard to please everyone. "'The only solution was to think of another name "'to go with Dietz, "'but while they were debating over possibilities,' Dietz's memory suddenly cleared. Josh, he said one night after supper to the surprise of everyone. Why, I'm Josh. Can you write that, Mr. Gus? Josh is short for Joshua, Augustus said. I can write either one of them. Joshua is the longest. Write the longest, Dietz said. I'm too busy for a short name. (laughs) That made no particular sense. But were they ever able to get Dietz to specify how he happened to remember that Josh was his other name? Augustus wrote him on the sign, as Dietz, Joshua, since he had already written the Dietz. Fortunately, Dietz's vanity did not extend to needing a title, although Augustus was tempted to write him in as a prophet. It would have gone with Joshua, but Call had a fit when he mentioned it. <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of brings in a lot of the personalities and the characters and so forth. And then, so in the end, the sign is finalized with a few other facts about the outfit he wants to make sure that he explains what their business is i mean why have this if they don't say what their business is so the next line is for rent horses and rigs and then the next line is for sale cattle and horses and then finally just to be absolutely clear he's added we don't rent pigs (laughs) (laughs) Which is my favorite. Actually, they say, don- uh, goats and donkeys neither bought nor sold. Then, we don't rent pigs. And then finally, he decided that what they needed for real gravitas on the sign was a wonderful Latin motto. Now, he'd had a little bit of education, like I said, but not really that much, but enough to, like, recognize Latin, but not enough to really know what it meant. So he went to a book that he would had, a Latin book, that he'd just loved to look at. And he pulled it out, and there were a bunch of mottos in it. And he wanted to look for the best motto for the sign, and it says, "'Unfortunately, the mottos had not been translated, "'perhaps because by the time the students got to the back of the book, "'they were supposed to be able to read Latin. "'Augustus had only a a fleeting contact with the language "'and had no real opportunity to improve his knowledge. "'Once he had been caught in an ice storm on the plains "'and had torn out a number of pages of the grammar "'in order to get a fire started. "'He had kept himself from freezing, "'but at the cost of most of the grammar and vocabulary. "'What was left didn't help him much with the mottos at the end of the book.'" However, it was his view that Latin was mostly for looks anyway, and he devoted himself to the mottos in order to find one that, that had the best look. The one he se- settled on was uva vanum the vari fit. Actually, in Latin, the V sound is pronounced as W, so I guess if I'm going to pronounce it correctly, <laughs> it would be uva uam vivendo um, wari, waria fit.
0: <laughs> I didn't know that, actually. Yeah,
1: yeah, that was uh, something that they... Scholars determined. So anyway, which seemed to him a beautiful
0: motto, whatever it meant. So according to the internet, this motto means a grape, uwa, mm-hmm. other grapes, uam, seeing, wuendo, changes, varia fit. So this person on the internet who translated this, a grape seeing grapes, says that it sort of represents greater narrative themes in the sense that we are changed by the lives around us, but it is also kind of funny.
1: It is very funny. <laughs> and so Gus unwittingly chooses a motto that metatextually describes the epic work that we're reading.
0: Right. It's just a very, it's a very smart book. It is. It's very smart. He's
1: a, Well, the guy went to Stanford Yeah, and he had the Wallace Stegner book. Uh, Scholarship hmm. and Wallace Stegner. If you don't know, he's a, a very famous, highly regarded, like 20th century American author. The Angle of Repose was one of his novels, which I read. It's very, very good. And he's a very, very American writer in that his themes are about, particularly the West, the West and the, and the Midwest. So McMurtry is a very highly educated guy. So his little riff on Latin there is probably, it's quite knowing.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, his style of writing too is very. You know, you said that you were like, that is going to be a dime store, like cheap read or whatever. And it's true that his writing is very accessible. Mm -hmm. He doesn't use a whole lot of difficult language. His sentences are just very simply constructed and very short and kind of, for the most part, and and straightforward. Mm -hmm. Um, But he has great dialogue, and that that doesn't mean it's not clever and it doesn't have like moments of beauty in it. And he has
1: that Western capacity for the... Beau bon mot, if you will, the apt phrase that just encompasses not only a good metaphor for the situation, but almost a like a little connective tissue, at for the themes. So there really is not. I'm trying to imagine, but I don't. I don't remember even reading any kind of misplaced metaphor. Because sometimes you'll read in books they'll say this was like blah 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 because they're trying to be clever. They're trying to be arty and. But metaphors really work when they go beyond that particular sentence or beyond that particular comparison, when they somehow connect in a a greater way to the theme that's going on. And he manages to do that. And so an example of one of his, I think, extremely apt metaphors. It's a metaphor not only that goes deeper textually, it goes deeper emotionally in that he doesn't have to tell you, you know from the sentence, the the emotional texture of what's going on. And there's a bit here where uh, he's talking about the... Saloon owner Xavier, who hired Lorena to work above his saloon and so he 's going to get a cut and basically kind of pimping her out and so on and so forth, but he had always loved her, apparently at least
0: well he 's fixated on her from
1: from what he 's calling, he says he loved her, and that he had always planned from the first day that he was going to marry her eventually um, it didn 't matter that she was a whore; she had intelligence. And he felt sure her intelligence would one day guide her to him. I think it's very interesting that he, he, from the first day, he knew he would marry her. But first he'd profit off her. And then he'd marry her when he didn't want to sell her anymore. But until then, that that's in the back of my mind as I'm reading that, going, okay, Xavier. She would see in time how much kinder he was than other men. She would recognize that he treated her better, loved her more. Yet it hadn't worked. She went with him willingly enough when he requested it. But no more willingly than she went with other men. Then Jake had come and taken her just taking her as easily as picking a hat off a rack. Now, I think that's just a perfect metaphor because it shows the idea of Lorena in this world as an object, an object that could be owned and passed about and also an object that, yeah, is is, is useful, has a lot of utility, but is not particularly valuable in itself. And that the men treat this, you know, just when you just take something, a hat off a rack, it's so easy and so thoughtless. And he doesn't have to say any of that by just using that metaphor.
0: Yeah, totally. You feel the whole the whole weight of like her position. And you see a lot in this book on the subject of Lorena. You see a huge spectrum of different ways that she's viewed um, by different people in their own way. And so you see a lot of different, on the subject of misogyny, you see a lot of different types of misogyny. You see Xavier, who... Uh, feels like he wants to marry her, and he's obsessed with her, and thinks he can treat her better. You see, you know, people who are just cruel. You see um, people who are want to charm, want her in various ways, and I think she's a very, like, clear-sighted character. Like, even characters that you might think well, they're better, for example, than someone else. Um, she, She has no sympathy for. Like, she just really sees through that idea of ownership, and has no time for it. Even she though she absolutely to. does, which is
1: why she doesn't want the marriage. But uh, she also has a relationship with Gus. And Gus is the one who's the kindest to her. The one who, in a way, almost almost treats her as an equal in their relations to each other. But at the same time, he's older and he's a man. Mm-hmm. And he always will use that. He'll always be operating from that position when he's dealing with her. And so he he tends to get the upper hand with her. So although he's kind and he does look
0: at her as a person... And feel for her. There's a patronizing yeah. aspect to it. And he also, like, he's free with his money around her. He's generous with it. But that's because he knows it, like, she needs it. Right. He knows that's what
1: will buy. And the word that they use in here for intercourse of this sort is a poke.
0: Right, So he'll pay for a poke.
1: <laughs> and there's,
0: a, there's a lot of uh, specialized language <laughs> in the book. It's very,
1: very funny, some yeah. of it. Um, so, so they call it a poke, and he, so he'll pay for the poke, or he'll cheat at cards with her. To, he still pays her, mm-hmm. so he's never cheating her, but he's, there is a manipulation, and it's a charming kind of manipulation. But the other thing that we look at is, in terms of his kindness to her, would he be kind to her if she weren't a beautiful young girl? He probably wouldn't have as much time for her anyway. No, no, he, he, wouldn't, he, he wouldn't be unkind. Mm-hmm. But he, yeah, exactly. I don't think he would take the time out to mm-hmm. really care for her if she was, say, his own age or older or, or if, she was, if she wasn't pretty, she wasn't attractive. Yeah. So there, that's therein is a misogyny as well. Right. So we see um, Call and McCrae. Okay, actually, can we go back? I wanted to yeah. read uh, one of my favorite bits. This is early on, Lorena. This is Lorena's point of view. And so you can see, being women, we're going to talk a lot about Lorena. But there's a point where she's talking about her job. So here's her point of view about uh, having sex, sex with Gus and men in general. And she says, In that respect, Gus was unusual, for most men didn't talk. He would blab right up until he shoved his old carrot in, and then he'd be blabbing again before it was even dry. Generous as he was, by local standards, he gave her $5 in gold every single time. Lorena still felt a little bit underpaid. It should have been five dollars for wedding as carrot and another five for listening to all that blab <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's in a way it's like despairing it's it's awful that she's in the situation, but that that kind of thing makes her she's got spirit mm-hmm. and even though she can't like we would like to see in a movie step out and buck this buck the system and most people can't do that you're bound by the system inside she still got her her point of view and her perspective and and it and, it, and the way she
0: expresses herself could be very very funny yeah I just thought that was hilarious she's a very she she's her own kind of salt of the earth and like very very straightforward and no nonsense but in a way that is actually funny a lot of the time do you right. have another quote about her you wanted to read yeah I do um
1: for example there's a a mystery about Lorena. She doesn't tell anybody about her past where she was a very young child and, and and her family ended up dying and then she got picked up by this man and he bought her pretty dresses and so forth but he had sex with her and she's pretty young. You can imagine mm-hmm. she's only 18 now and then after a while he started passing her around to his friends and getting money for it and then he sold her to this other even worse guy And she ended up in in this isolated area, and this basically was a cat house or whorehouse with these terrible people, and she ended up hooking up with this other man in order to get away, and then he ended up being abusive and beating her up. So she has not had uh, any luck. She Mm -hmm. just can't catch a break. So finally she ends up in this uh, little town, and... uh, catches a little bit of a break in that she she still has to be a prostitute, but at least she's saving up some money where she wants to go to San Francisco. That is her dream.
0: She figures there she can make it. There
1: she can make the life she wants. And the thing is, she doesn't know
0: anything about San Francisco. She heard one of the men she was with talk about it once or twice. So all she knows about it is that there are boats there and it's a little bit cooler than all the desert she's lived in her whole life. And so it's like a very simple kind of, childlike dream where she's just like I I just want to go there it's cool there there's a breeze it's not
1: hot yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) well and the other thing that is so clear-eyed about Lorena and why
1: she enlists our sympathy and and our identification is that um, they pointed out in the book that a lot of the other girls they would go with the cowboys in return for gifts so they give them a ribbon or a dress or you know whatever building the illusion that they were really their sweethearts Mm-hmm. that they really were in a relationship together. And then, of course, the next herd would come along, and they would ride off, the, the cowboys would ride off, and the woman would be left, and she might be left with more than she had when he first came in in terms of being pregnant, right? which would happen. And so Lorena never f- fooled herself that way. She knew this was a business transaction. She held it as a business transaction. And until Jake came along, she didn't fool herself that there was any kind of real relationship going on. She said about her colleagues, shall we call them. They would act just as silly as respectable girls, getting jealous of one another and pouting all day if their boys didn't act to suit them. Lorena had no interest in conducting things that way. The men who came to see her would have to realize she was not interested in play-acting. And so at one point, Gus comes and he seems to be trying to have a, a real relationship with her and I think it was probably pretty sincere but as we learn later that Gus in terms of women is feckless he he will sleep around it doesn't matter so he'll be wonderful and then he'll be gone and that's just really how he is so he comes in early in the book and he's trying to find out about her past and he wants to talk and he wants her to talk and she's silent so he offers her a $10 gold piece which she really wants so she can go to San Francisco. So she thinks about it while he's having his poke. And she's thinking these thoughts about this play acting. And so she almost is ready to tell him. Not so much for the gold, but for the connection. And then she realizes that that would just be play acting. And she thinks, after a bit, she decided she wasn't interested in telling Augustus her life story either. She buttoned her dress back up and handed him the $10. So she forewent the money. Didn't make up a story. That's the other thing is she's honest. She didn't make up a story. Of course, August probably would have figured that out. And she hands it back to him. So I felt like that was a real... you know, He really builds the character, Mm -hmm. who she is. And I felt a lot for her. And I liked her. And I didn't feel that he was mistreating her in terms of a misogynist wanting to show a woman being hurt.
0: It was kind of how it was. I agree with that. And yeah, and so Lorena just becomes very sympathetic. And she, again, she's not like a a character who she's not like one of these women who's like she can fight or something like she learns how to use a gun she's shooting you know she like gets power in this way or she um Mm -hmm. she's she's rides a horse or she's tough like a a man or anything like that but she's you know she's just got her own kind of like endurance i guess she absolutely does and that helps her survive
1: through to the end of the book um okay we're gonna go i'm gonna just take Lorena I'm going to kind of follow her thread through the book a little bit and talk a little bit about that so essentially what happens is Lorena meets up with Jake who was a former partner to Gus and Call but he Jake took off and they hadn't seen him like in seven years and he is the Wickham of this story he's handsome and so charming and just delightful to be around and fun and knows exactly how to look at a woman to make her melt and feel valued and loved and then he just he's weak He's weak as can be, and he will dump them. He will do whatever it is to save his own behind. And plus we find out later when things get tough, he's a big old whiner. He's a big baby. He's actually not particularly competent. He's not like Gus and Call, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. He's not a great tracker.
0: He's not a good shot. He's not brave. He's not going to go in and rescue anybody. He's just good at manipulating his image, and, and he's really petulant. But underneath.
1: somehow he manages to break through Lorena's uh, carapace of caution and she starts to believe that play acting she believes he's going to take her to San Francisco as he keeps saying and even when he starts to renege on that she still kind of believes she can get him to do it for her and take her and you almost get the sense that Gus would would give her the money or Gus might even take her at one point in the book but she wants Jake to do it and I'm not sure what that is is it, it didn't seem like she loved him so much it had to be Jake but somehow she'd set her mind and a certain stubbornness had set in.
0: I know. what do you think? I almost think that um, whatever it was initially that made, and I, I'm pretty sure being young and attractive, despite how sensible she is, probably had a good deal to do with it, um, that she like opened up to him to a certain extent or at least trusted him a bit. But I also think that... It's because she did that that she cannot, like, um, you know, let her pride or whatever, admit she was wrong or ask somebody else for help or something. She feels like she has to do it herself and she has to stick with her to her guns, you know, the choices that she made. Yeah, I think that's right on. And the
1: reason I do is here's a passage in the book because uh, essentially Jake, uh, the what is it? Hat Creek Cattle Company. The Hat Creek Cattle Company uh, they decide, or actually it's really Woodrow Call who decides, that they're going to go up to Montana and be the first cattle outfit in Montana grazing cattle and that way they'll be able to have the best land because they'll be able to grab the best land and everything uh, and everyone's wondering, oh you know, the, the Indians are not what they call pacified up there and he's, oh they, they will be by the time we get there or, you know, he, I, I think he just decided to do it and there really was no raising to the level of logic. He just decided he was going to do it. And so they're going to take off. Jake has arrived in town. Jake is being pursued by the law. So he figures if he can hang close to his buddies, they're ex-Texas Rangers. They will kick ass for him is what he expects. So Lorena decides she's going to go. And oddly enough, she's got the opportunity here to go to San Francisco and she doesn't take it. She's going to go with Jake. And and Jake wants to go to San Antonio, go somewhere else and hang out. And she goes, no, I came from San Antonio. I'm not going back. And so she actually makes Jake go on the cattle drive <laughs> right? and take her. So she's really got a lot of, you know, a lot of will when she wants it. So they go along with the, the cattle drive. And what happens, okay, this is a huge spoiler. What happens is there is a renegade... Criminal Indian, and we will need to talk about the Indians in this book as well. Uh, named Blue Duck, who comes and basically he steals horses and he steals women and then he goes and he sells them. And he's a sociopath. Mm-hmm. He doesn't care about anybody. He doesn't have any feeling, any sympathy, and he he does whatever profitable for him. He doesn't care. So he's a very frightening character, and he's brutal, very very brutal. And Jake goes off to play cards and doesn't come back when he says. And Loreen is about a mile away from the outfit and augustus says okay come on come w- with us hang out you'll be safe and she says no i'm fine here i don't want to be around the men i don't want to be around the men because they'll look at they keep looking at me and of course they do because one in particular is deeply in love with her and almost stalkery in love with her and but they're all like sexually repressed
0: right you know and so he sends um newt over and she sends newt away and all, all these things where you're like She's like, oh shit! I should have done this. I just, I should have just yeah, gone with them. You're, you're sitting there
1: reading it, going, oh, right? God, <laughs> come on, you know. And what happens is, Blue Duck comes. He, Blue Duck comes through, and he snatches the horse's dad there, which he wanted, and he snatches her. I mean, she's this blonde woman, so she'll be able to. He'll be able to get a good price by selling her for uh, sex slave, and so he takes her away. And then what happens is, right before that happens, Lorena is sitting at the campfire. Jake is gone. He keeps going away and then coming back. And he's getting kind of meaner and slapping her around. And now he's gone for three days. And so, you know, those of us who are more mature are going, leave him, leave (laughs) him, cut the ties, cut the ties, woman. And she doesn't. And then right before that happens... She says uh, she had been proposed to by Xavier. He said, I'll marry you and I'll take you to San Francisco. That was her opportunity and she turned it down because she's going to go with Jake and he's going to take her. And she says, at times waiting, she had almost decided just to take the horse and mule and try to find her way back to Lonesome Dove. Xavier had said he would marry her and take her anywhere she wanted to go. She remembered the day he come into the room, his wild eyes, his threat to kill Jake. When she had nothing to do but sit around and think about it, her capacity for mistakes discouraged her So that she considered drowning herself in the little pool. So she, throughout the book, laments the mistakes that she's made. Like you were saying, she couldn't let go. She had dug her heels in. And then later she looks back and goes, I made a mistake. Perhaps after so many mistakes, your mind finally broke loose and wandered back and forth between past and present. And so then after this sort of realization where she doesn't take action, she stays where she is even though she's having these ruminations and then she's abducted. And this is where we get into some of the real sexual violence. Prior to this, there are some rapes described. There is obviously the prostitution, which is not always nice, but it's just kind of unsavory. But then we've got Blue Duck. He doesn't do anything. He's very cruel.
0: That's that's sort of the thing that's scary about him is that he doesn't care so much that he doesn't even have human like desires, quote unquote, or anything. He has no lust. Like he's just mechanical.
1: He's a transactional sociopath. So he's going to take her up and then they find some horrible, it's a group of like a band. Is it
0: his band? Well, they call him his band. Oh, okay, all right. It's basically—it's uh... a
1: group of Kiowa and white men, and they're—they're—and they're, they're in their, each in their own way disgusting and horrible. And so he says, "Go ahead." And so they basically gang rape her almost every day. There are a couple who stand out as particularly fearful, and one is a little bit sympathetic. Potentially, I mean, he's still
0: going to rape her, but he might.
1: Not he, want her to get killed.
0: Yeah, he, uh, he wants them <laughs> to stop beating her and stuff. So there's like a whole range. And then yeah, and then so, that plays with you too, right? Because you're like, this guy's a little bit better than the <laughs> other guys, but that doesn't mean he's not utter scum. Right,
1: exactly, exactly. So what do you think of that? What do you think of that mm-hmm. in terms of these accusations of misogyny? I really think that's the core incident. Other, than, you know, There's a the prostitution and all to, that, but sure. they really
0: react. Because it is, it's hard. I mean, it's interesting, it's... So in this book, it's not like the Game of Thrones, for example, where this this is happening right and left to like almost every character and stuff. Um, It's like Lorena is the one, I don't know, Jesus figure, if you will, who like suffers all the sexual abuse. And that's her arc. That's the issue that's addressed. One of the issues that's addressed with her character this book is like the ultimate Western because it employs every Western trope mm-hmm. in it and yet like transcends all of them. And so I think this is one key element where I guess the, the gritty, like it's not graphically described or anything, but the grittiness of just having that in there and everything is what's alluded to in a lot of Westerns and what people fear in Westerns and, and that but that existed at that time and everything is always there. And so it's almost like he had to have, he had to address that in the book. He makes it the harshest possible situation, kind of. And so, yeah, he could have just not had any sexual violence in the book, I guess. Or he could have made it more palatable or something like that. I think it's in there because such an extreme, horrible, traumatic, like, event to happen to a character gives... Him a chance to explore a character coping with extreme horrible trauma, but they chose a
1: woman. I think personal mm-hmm. people people criticize because he chose a woman, and also there there really isn't much of a balance. There is another woman who lives on a ranch, but she also ends up having difficulties and uh, with the whole sexual issues and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But she kind of balances because she's got some power. She's got some uh, ability to make choices and agency is the word I'm trying to go for. Mm-hmm. So that does tend to have more of a balance so I really find that I don't understand that accusation other than that the book is not a polemic of now there's someone who's going to make a speech about how bad this is no one in this book even Lorena is gleaming white and heroic Mm -hmm. and good everybody Indians white black all have their faults to varying degrees They aren't taking, like, one kind of people. Like, one of the things I do appreciate about this book that I find very irritating in a lot of movies is that if you're going to have an Indian in the movie, they're, like, holy. And the culture is holy. And they're wise and compassionate. And, you know, and they've got to be, like, not a person. Like, to make up for, in the past, being wholly bad.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. They there's have to be polarizing. wholly good.
1: Right, yeah, exactly. And this is not polarizing. There's wisdom there, but everybody in there, I don't think there's really anybody except the women in the book. The women tend to be at the best, much better end of the scale. They're human, but they're like good people. Right. And there are a couple of good men. Usually they're younger. And everybody else is extremely flawed, including the ostensible heroes of McCall, of Colin McCrae. Because even though we're supposed to be enlisted into their cause, the author is kind of making us question whether we should be enlisted into their cause Mm -hmm. and whether their ethos is something that we want to align ourselves with. But they've got enough good characteristics that it becomes a question rather than the author leading us by the nose. Mm -hmm. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. sandwich. cheese